I love you a whole bunch. All right, some of you need it, so reach over there and hug your hug your neighbor. Do that. They need that. I can see it. Especially Tyler up here. He needs several. Break your neck. No, don't break their neck. Oh, mercy. We are in... Week 12 of our study, the story, and today we're going to talk about the trials of a king. We're talking about David, of course. Uh, We've kind of got him into the throne last week and for the next two weeks. I I love sometimes how the Bible does. It it will just um, touch on things that we're dealing with in everyday life. Have you discovered that as you read through the Bible? And in this particular study that we're doing, we're going to see it more and more that, that God will deal with things in our lives that we need to hear about. Uh, the next two sessions today and next week, we're going to deal with family. Families can be really messy, can't they? Tell me about it. Well, I, don't I heard that, but I don't want to tell you about it. Even though we're going to tell about it, we're going to talk about it. Families can be messy. Church families can be messy. Yeah, sure. Because it's made up of... I heard a guy say one time that if I could get paid what I thought I was worth, and I didn't have to deal with people at all, I'd have the perfect job. How many of you are ready to sign up for that one? Yeah, that's right. David's family was an absolute mess. It wasn't... A happily ever after story. It was more soap opera meets Jerry Springer. I, I think that's would be more a, a descriptive way to look at David's family. You know, even though the Bible says David was a man after God's own heart, he needed a lot of grace when it came to his own house, and not too unlike us today. We need a lot of grace, don't we? If you're a parent raising children you understand that people need a lot of grace. I've told you the story before, but it's one of, the, it's one of my funniest stories. I was telling a, a guy I was telling you about that's an agnostic. I, I was sharing with him this week. And it's funny how the stories come back to Bible things. It's interesting. But anyway, I, we got to talk about church. And I said, you know, one of my funniest church stories is the dad who had some kids with him and him and the, him and the wife and the kids and the kids were fussing, especially one boy. He just couldn't sit still. He was pitching all the time. And that was back when the little kids stayed in the church with everybody, right? And so anyway, the dad decides, as I've told you the story before, the dad, the dad decides he's going to take the child out, right? And so he grabs the boy and throws it. He's had all he could handle. He throws him up on his shoulder and the boy is facing toward the preacher and he yells out, Preacher! <laughs> the preacher stops, obviously. He said, Yes. He said, pray for me, pray for me. <clears throat> I thought this guy was going to fall out of his chair. Because you see, sometimes that's just what we're praying. Pray for me. I need, I need some prayer. If you're raising a family, you know that. If you've already raised the family, now you're praying for those that are raising their family. It never ends, does it? But let me ask you a question. If the walls of your house could speak... 
The good news is they don't. But if they could speak, would they tell a story of laughter and joy? Or would it be about the yelling and the screaming and the infighting? Maybe you grew up in a home where you'd lay in bed at night, try to pull a pillow up over your head and over your ears to try to muffle the sound of your mom and dad fighting and screaming and yelling and throwing things. And you vow in your heart of hearts that you're never going to yell. And yet now you find yourself yelling. You vow in your heart of hearts that you would never be passive like your dad was. But that pretty much describes you now. And you definitely say, I'm never going to walk out. I'm going to work through everything. And yet that's crossing your mind and your heart right now. If the walls of your house could speak, what story would they tell? Would they tell a story of courageous commitment or would they tell a story of a whole bunch of broken promises? You see, on our wedding day, we stand with our spouse before our friends and family and before God and the preacher and we say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And we really, really mean it. Amen? We really do. But then something unexpected happens in that story. We didn't know that the economy was going to go south and that he couldn't find a job. We, you didn't know that she was going to struggle with depression and you didn't know that there was going to be special needs within some of the children that are thrown into the mix. And when you try to blend families... <laughs> And you didn't know that there would be some unexpected attraction to a co-worker. I mean, it just seems like the two of you get along so well. And you didn't know that your husband was going to be so inattentive. And you didn't know that your wife wasn't ever going to really care whether she looked attractive or not anymore. I love the story I read recently about a soldier's wife who once he left for deployment in Afghanistan, he was gone a year. He should have seen what he came back to. She lost 160 pounds. He looked past her because he didn't recognize her. But you should have seen his eyes when he realized who she was. She said, you know, I just let myself go. And I realized that I needed to be more for him than I was. She said, so I set out to change that. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. So if your walls of the house could speak, would they tell a story of commitment or would it talk about brokenness? And my guess is if you ask David, he would never have imagined that his story would be such a tragic story. Because his family was an absolute train wreck. The way our story starts out and the scripture starts out in 2 Samuel. It says, in the spring when the kings were off at war. But the problem is, David wasn't off at war. <laughs> it's the springtime. He should have been at war with the other kings, but he didn't feel like he was needed, so he stayed in the palace and let the army go and do what it does. So he's in the palace one night, and he can't rest, and he decides that he's going to go up to the top of the palace on the roof. I'm going to get some fresh air and watch the sunset, he tells himself. 
But he knows. He knows what he's going to see when he gets up there. It's the right time of the day. And from the perspective of the palace roof, he can see all the other roofs. And what he's going to see are women bathing. So he's restless and he gets up at night and he turns on the TV and he flips it over to HBO and Cinemax and because he already knows what he's going to see. Ah, then there's Bathsheba. Now, I don't know if that's a good name to name a daughter or not, Bathsheba, <laughs> but she was taking a bath. She's beautiful. And David said, hey, who's this? And so the servants tell him, David, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the warrior. I love how the servants slip this in. Uriah the warrior who has fought alongside you, who is off on the battlefield now fighting for you. That's his wife. Emphasis placed by the preacher, by the way. David sends for her and the affair begins and she becomes pregnant. And he's desperate to cover it up. To cover up his sin and to keep it a secret. And we do that all the time, don't we? What are you doing in there? Nothing. Nothing. Right? That's why parents never let your children have a computer in their room by themselves. Put it in the middle of the living room where everybody has to see what they're seeing. Well, that's invading their privacy. Good. Good. Better yet, don't let them have access to it at all. Good. See, the problem is you've got those little things you carry in your hand. It's a computer. So when they get home in the afternoon, confiscate that thing. Oh yeah, hope that works out for you. But anyway, Bathsheba becomes pregnant. She's, he's desperate to cover it all up. Uriah's on the battlefield thinking, hey, if I can get Uriah to come home, sleep with her, it's going to cover everything. So he brings him home, right? Gets him, gets, says, I want you to go in and sleep with your wife. You've been a good, faithful soldier, man, and I, oh, I want to help you. And Uriah says, I can't do that. And so he gets him drunk. He says, well, now go in there. And he says, I can't do that. He passes out on the, on the floor. And David's desperate. He's desperate. He doesn't want anybody to know what he's done. He's trying to cover his tracks. Trying to get things covered up. See, and that's what we do when it comes to our marriages and our, our families. Is we don't want people to see that we're having struggles. We don't want people to see that we're messing up. That's why sin is best done in the dark. You see. Because God's not awake in the dark. <laughs> Only in the daylight is God awake. Amen? When do cockroaches come out? Cockroaches come out in the dark. When does sin do its best work? In the dark. You see, we've all got problems. We've all got families that need help. We've all got families that need a little more attention. So David decides that he's got to take this to another level. He sends Uriah then to the battlefield with a sealed document 
And he takes it then to his commander. The commander opens the letter and he knows it's from David, and he, or sees it's from David, and he reads it. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to put Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. Then I want you to withdraw from him. So in other words, he has Uriah killed. Bathsheba's then a widow. And he, being the benevolent king that he is, he moves her into the palace and he says to all of Israel, I will do the honorable thing and take care of her. And all the people are going, wow, we've got a great king. He's wonderful. Just when you think it couldn't get messier. I mentioned that Jerry Springer thing. (laughs) Here it comes. If you keep reading in the story, there's a son of David named Amnon. He decides that he's going to... And by the way, he's got a good-looking half-sister named Tamar. He likes Tamar. He likes her so much, he rapes her. (laughs) Now, that was an offense worthy of death in this day. But you see, David, because it's his son and his half-daughter, doesn't really do anything about it. And so Tamar's full brother Absalom says, oh yeah? So for two years, he plots how he's going to get his dad, David, and kill him. And that's, is that going on in your family? David kills Absalom, Absalom, uh, and everything just falls, falls apart. Whole family's in pieces. And you think, how did this happen? How did this happen? How did this family become such a mess? How did it fall apart like this? It would be good to take a look back and see how this family got to where it got. You, you've got David, you've got Bathsheba, you've got the affair, you've got the cover-up, you've got the rape, you've got the death of a son, you have a civil war on the nation, in the nation, and you're thinking, how did this happen? This is such a mess. Well, I think it's a healthy exercise, because many of us right now, we're in that moment when things are starting to go wrong, and we don't see it, we don't know it now, but eventually everything's going to fall apart. And if we could go back to this time in this place, we could see some of the decisions that we were making that led to this mess, who we are today. So in your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we've got to go there to get catch up to where we are in the story. And when I talk to families... One of the most incredible statements I hear more often than not is this statement. I don't know how this happened. So I think we can learn some things. So the scene is in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I can't help but think that this scene, if it would have played out differently, it would have changed the rest of the story. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, David is married to his first wife, Michael. You didn't know about her, did you? She was the wife of his youth. And their beginning was a romantic beginning because David was about 18 and went to the battlefield to take his brother's food. Remember the story? He gets in and fights the giant and is mocking the armies of the Lord. And David says, I think you're not going to do that. And he goes out and he kills him, cuts his head off and all this stuff. The thing I forgot to mention last week in that story is that Saul the king had made an arrangement that whoever would go out and fight the giant 
would then be exempt from paying taxes for the rest of their life and would get the daughter's hand in marriage. <laughs> so, David's fighting Goliath. He's going to receive this tax exemption for life. I wonder if that's available to us here in America. Saul's daughter's hand in marriage, and her name's Michael. A little bit of an odd name to name a girl, I think. Michael. But, here we go. But, he got excited because he said, man, I'm going to be free from taxes for the rest of my life. And he says, hey, Saul, can I get a picture of that girl? <laughs> he wanted to see what she's going to look like. Because he had to wonder. So he defeats the giant, gets the tax-free life, and wins the hand of his new queen or soon-to-be queen, Princess Michael, or Princess Michael, and uh, takes her as his wife, the romantic beginning starts. But by the time you get to 2 Samuel 6, there's something going pretty well for David. He's king now, and the office is going good. The nation of Israel is in a good season. The Ark of the Covenant has entered into the city again. And the Ark has returned, and there's a great celebration. So David comes in with the Ark of the Covenant. It's just a great day for the nation of Israel. And he's celebrating for the Lord. And in his celebration, takes off his robes, and he just dances. <laughs> Can you see it? He just takes off his robe and he just starts dancing. Now, I dance, but it's an ugly dance. David's dance wasn't ugly. You ever been so excited you just had happy feet? Like the penguin? Happy feet? I love it. It's a great movie. Man, they got them little thumping feet just going at it, man. Sometimes you just got to dance, amen? And that's what David did. He was so excited and so ex excited about the Ark of the Covenant being back in, in the city. And he just, he just went after it. In fact, the Bible says that he danced with all his might <laughs> before God. And Michael, his wife, is watching from, I would guess, a window where she sees what's happening and what's taking place. And she really gets embarrassed at the behavior of her husband. Any of you wives ever get embarrassed? Don't raise your hand. Any of your wives ever get embarrassed by the behavior of your husband's? Yeah, don't raise your hand, please. Because I know every hand will go up and every, every tongue will confess. <laughs> but not only that, but in front of other women and wives, some of you know what it's like for your husbands to embarrass you in public. <laughs> if my wife were here, she would be standing up and clapping, I'm sure. <laughs> but you know what, ladies? It's, it's really part of our job to embarrass you in public. I mean, it's, it is. Second Samuel 6, verse 20. Look, look what happens. So David returns home to bless his household. So he comes home in a good mood. He's been a good day at work. Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him. Right out of the gate. Catch the sarcasm. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls and his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. Michael attacks David. David just gives it right back to her, though. I love this. <laughs> it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else in your family. So he does what every good American husband would do. He attacks his in-laws. Yeah. Sorry, people. You came from. It's before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone else from your house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. I will celebrate before the Lord and... That's how David was seeing it, but Michael didn't see it that way. And so Michael, the story ends with 
Michael's life saying she had no children to the day of her death. So in other words, they probably never slept together another time. And you never read about her again in Scripture. And you think, what happened? What happened? And why would the Bible even tell us about this situation, this story? Why would it give us such specific play-by-play information? And, And I'm thinking that if things would have gone differently in that moment, then maybe it would have changed a lot of other moments in this story. I mean, what if David wouldn't have come home by himself and celebrated, but he included Michael in the celebration? What if he would have made sure that his wife was with him by his side to celebrate the ark of the Lord returning? What if Michael would have been encouraging to her husband, I mean, it was a great day for him. And what if when he walked in, she would have just given him this big hug and celebrated with him? What if David would have listened to his wife and tried to see some things from her perspective? What if there would have been the sarcasm, maybe wouldn't have been the sarcasm right out of the gate? What if their criticism would have been replaced with praise? What if there wouldn't have been personal attacks? What if David would have been more understanding of how she felt? What if Michael would have not been so insecure and defensive? What if someone would have said, I'm sorry? What if someone would have said, would you forgive me? What if David would have fought for the wife of his youth with the same passion and faith that he fought the giant Goliath? How would that have changed the rest of the story? Because here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that the stories of our marriages and of our families are written in the seemingly insignificant moments of day-to-day life. It's an accumulative effect of daily small decisions that ultimately write the stories of our marriages and our families. We see the big moments. Yeah, David's up on the roof looking around. Sees Bathsheba. Has an affair. That's when everything fell apart. No. No. It started way back. It's little accumulative things that build. Earlier I had you get a rock. I forgot to bring mine up here. (laughs) So get your rock and look at it. Don't hold it up. Just hold it there in front of me and look at it. Because you see... When things fall apart, there's more to the story. And, and, and I, I like what one author, one author described this. He says, when we get married or in marriage, we give our spouse some kind of a burden to carry. So I want the little rock to represent that burden that you've been given to carry. And we say to our husband or we say to our wife, you carry this rock. And because they love us, they agree to carry the rock that we've given them. And for some of you, you've given the rock of workaholism. You work all the time. You're never home. You're never there to meet their needs. You're never there to really help them. But you know what? You keep saying, you know, she understands. Or he gave you a rock and it's his hot temper. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't take anything to set him off. 
You can come in, you can be the nicest person in the world, you can come in and have your hair blown differently, and all of a sudden, he's throwing stuff through the window. Or, he's so passive he doesn't know what to do. He can't make a decision. He's he's indecisive. And because you love him, you're, you're mentally determined to carry that rock because you've been handed that rock. It gets a little bigger each time these things happen, but maybe you've been given the rock of addiction to alcohol or to pornography. Maybe it's a rock that your spouse hands you of nagging and criticism, but you love your spouse and you say, hey, I'm going to carry it. I'm mentally determined to carry that rock, and you do for a while, but at some point... At some point you drop the rock because you're sick and tired of carrying the rock. And the person who's still holding the rock can't figure out what happened. How did it all fall apart? How did it come to this? It's because that rock has been carried for a long time. And so we ask our families to carry these rocks and, and we think... Oh, they're fine. They can handle it. They're tough. My spouse, she can carry the rock even when I'm constantly out of town. I know she has. She says that we need to be more intentional and we need to have some more time together, but, you know, she's going to be fine. After all, I'm making more money and, you know, she can carry the rock. It's no big deal. Or maybe she criticizes and has a negative spirit toward her husband and just nag and nag, all the time. Can't find a good word to say to him. His hair may part the wrong way every time she looks at him. Because when she's talking, his hair parts all the time. Then there's those kids. And and see, parents give kids rocks to carry. And kids, and we keep saying, all oh, those kids will be fine. They'll be fine. They'll, they'll make it through. I mean, they're, they're resilient. They're kids. They're young. Come on. So we're in chapter 6 and... Things are falling apart, but I want to give you some lessons that we can learn from David's family. Let me rip those off for you real quick. Number one, identify what the issue really is. Identify what the issue really is. Take time to know. It's hard in the heat of the moment, believe me, but take time to really identify what the issue is. Because Michael just lays into David as soon as he comes in and David's immediately defensive. But what would have happened if David would have really listened? Maybe the reason Michael felt that way is because she wanted to be invited along. She wanted to be celebrating with him. And maybe the reason she felt the way she she did was because she was feeling a little insecure with David dancing around with all the slave girls and she just needed to be reaffirmed. Identity was the real issue. Is the issue really that your husband has come home late? Or is it that you never know when he's coming home and what time? Or is it that when he comes home, he's on his cell phone all the time, checking email and text messaging, and he still feels like mentally he's at work. I read a a neat trick to take. Next time you go out to eat dinner, both of you put your cell phones in the center of the table. And the first one that touches their phone has to pay for the bill. You know what I'm talking about. She said, you're out to eat dinner. You're going to look across the table at each other. You're not more than three feet from each other. And what are you both doing? You don't even look 
up till the food comes, and then you don't even look up then. It's been so far. Cindy's just going at it over there on that, and I I got my hand on the table like this, and I'm looking at her. I'm gonna start counting out loud the next time. I'm gonna say ten, nine, and when I get to one, I'm gonna say gone. I think I'll just get up and walk out. Usually we're in separate cars anyway. You see what I mean? Put the phone away. Turn it off. Oh, heaven forbid. Oh, Lord, no, don't turn it off. Turn it off. Hey, have them bring bring a glass of water with no ice. Drop it in the water. Oh, look at you. You're all in hives right now. Secondly, find a good place and time for difficult conversations. One of the one of the things that Cindy and I love doing is watching the kids while Jeff and Misty go out. It's fun for us. I'm just grateful that we can do it. Oh, I'm well aware it's fun for you guys. They come back with that sappy look on their face. I love it. I love it. Because there's times when we need that, don't we? And so if you're a grandparent and your kids are close, keep the grandkids. Tell them to go out. If they don't have the money, give them some money. Give them some money tell them to go out. And make them leave their cell phones with you. Boy, he's ruining every moment, every every time. I've got a point. He, he, he shoots me down. As soon as David walks in the door, Michael lays into him. That's not the time or the place. If she needs to express some things to him, she should have found a better time and a place to do it. David, likewise, should have the maturity to say, look, let's not talk about this right now. Maybe a little bit later. Let's sit down, let's talk about this. It's important to find the right time, the right place. Number three, stick to the issue. Stick to the issue. Don't start regurgitating that person's life and all their faults. Please. Oh, they've got plenty. And they've been told all their life how worthless they are. Maybe you're with them to build them up. You see, I'm talking to the men here equally as much as I'm talking to the women. The Bible says that a nagging woman is like a dripping roof. Drip, 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 drip. If you go to the Samson story, it says that Delilah pressed him daily until he gave her the way that he was strong. I can only imagine. Are you going to tell me today? Are you going to tell me today? You gonna tell me today? Well, if you don't tell me today, then I don't know if I'm gonna stay around you or not. I want to know what's going on today. And you better tell me today because I'm gonna I'm gonna leave because you're worthless anyway. I'm telling you right now, your hair's long, your scraggly looking thing. I want to. Well, you know, who knows what she said to him? But the Bible says she pressed him every day, every day, every day, every day. <laughs> Stick. 
stick to the issue. Don't. Well, if it wasn't for your mother and dad. Oh, my goodness. It's always mom and dad's fault, isn't it? That you're a knothead Neanderthal. Sorry about that. I know. I know. Your dad had one eye in the middle of his forehead and he drug his knuckles on the ground. I know. (laughs) Ate raw meat out in the backyard. I I know. I know. Really? (laughs) And then lastly, start with a positive. Start with a positive. While David was dancing, Michael could have said, man, now that's some moves right there, buddy. I do this little goofy dance at our house. Our kids, everybody, they all laugh about my little dance. They've even tried to copy it. They do it a whole lot better than I do. <laughs> Just start with a positive. When you see each other in the morning, say, Whew, man, you're looking good. See, it takes less muscles to smile than it does to frown. You got to work at frowning. Smiling's easy. Guys, get up every morning with a smile on your face and look at her and just go, mm, 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 mm. she is going to have a heart attack. And she's going to wonder, what is he up to now? Guys, start telling her how beautiful she is, how wonderful she is, and how much you appreciate her. Tell her that. She might respond by not hitting you more than once. Affirmation. Good things. I'll shoot an email or a text message to my wife and I'll say, Honey, I think you're awesome. I just want you to know I love you. And I get back this, I always get back some nice responses. It's good. It's good. You know, Proverbs says it's better to live in the desert than to live in the home with a wife who likes conflict. You can nag and actually women that are like this, all they're doing is waterboarding their husbands. But the truth is, maybe we don't say as well as we should or often as we could, but nothing drives a man to passivity more quickly than a wife who's critical, negative, And discouraging. And here's how it happens. A wife's critical. She's negative. Her husband who's inclined naturally to to want to win the heart of his wife. Feels like nothing he does is good enough. So he just quits. I love the commercial that's on. I think it's an insurance commercial where the guy, the older guy, he never says a word in the commercial. The wife is going, well, I'm telling you, if we get on that motorcycle, it's a death trap. Well, you know, and she's just on and on, and he's just rolling his eyes. And the waitress comes to pour more coffee, and he just rolls his eyes, you know, like he's got to listen to this one more time. That's why guys retreat, women. It's discouragement and criticism that leads men oftentimes to be passive. And yet you want them to be men. You want them to stand up and be leaders in the home. You want them to be the spiritual icons that people can follow. Encourage them to be that way. Now that I've beat up on the ladies, let me beat up on some men right quick. The Bible says that men, we are to love our wives like Christ loved the church. And how did He love the church? 
<laughs> he loved the church by reconciling himself with her. Men are the lead reconcilers in the relationship. Men should be the first and the quickest to say, I'm sorry. Well, I didn't do anything wrong. Doesn't matter. Say it anyway. Because you're a reconciler. Well, I was only 5% wrong. She's 95% wrong. Then you make up for the five. Lower your pride level, gentlemen. And love her more than she can love you. Show her how to serve more than she can serve you. Show her how to clean the house better. Well, I, I can't do that, so. She cleans better than I do anyway. And if I clean, she comes behind me and points out the things I didn't clean in the first place. So what do I do? Don't clean! I love it. I love it when the wife argues about the man and how he puts the laundry in the washing machine. So he puts the, la he puts the laundry in and then pours the, the detergent on. Well, no, you put the detergent in first, then you put the clothes on top. Really? Why can't you rejoice that the, that the old boy's washing clothes? Amen? <laughs> Boy, I've done a lot of meddling today. <laughs> Too bad. The shoe fits, wear it. If the walls of your house could talk, what would they talk about? Conflict, brokenness, anger, disappointment, bitterness? Or would they tell a story of God's grace and God's mercy and God's love and God's healing power of reconciliation? And words that are kind and words that are uplifting and words that are gracious and merciful. God can take broken pieces and put them back together. So that's what He wants to do, church. He wants us to be reconcilers and healers. And He wants us to speak good, good things to each other, not bad things. And if you keep reading in David's story, what you find is that God uses this whole mess. David can't hit rewind. He can't go back and do things over. But God uses the whole mess for His glory. And when you get to the first chapter of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, verse 1, chapter 1, Jesus is finally introduced. And how is He going to be introduced? It's His big moment. He is finally coming onto the scene. That is Jesus. And here, here's how He's mentioned. Here's how He's introduced in Matthew 1.1. He's introduced as the Son of David. You see, only God can do that. Only God can do that. That Jesus is the son of David. A family that was in such a mess. Everything falling apart. But look what God did. And the great news is it's not too late for you. It's not too late. You can make the changes instantly today. You can draw so close to God that it affects everyone around you. Men, would you become the spiritual leaders of your home? You can decide that. Ladies, would you become that encourager and not a discourager? 
Pray with me, please. God, we want to, first of all, thank you for being an artist that paints family portraits. Sometimes in the picture, families need to be cleaned up. Sometimes the painting seems to need to be starting over. But God, in order for any painting to be made whole, we need you with the brush in your hand. So God, would you take your brushes of mercy and grace and paint a whole new picture of our family? Would you do that for us? Would you, would you do that in us? God, there's so much power that you have that we need. God, it's what it takes. And it takes a lot for a man, a husband to be a man. Who would say, I haven't been getting the job done. I've been wrong and I've been passive and I I need to step up. It requires a wife who makes a decision, God, to say, I want to be an encourager, not a discourager. I want to be supportive, but God, I need your help. I've not done very well, but would you help me? Would you help me be more intentional in this way? God, we want to point fingers. We want to blame other people. But Lord, would you help us to come to you in this moment with a spirit of brokenness and humility and just say to you, God, help us. We know, Father, that no matter what story is being told, that it's not too late for you. You have the power to take the pen and to write a new story for our marriages, for our families. So would you do that in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And that invitation is for you to respond to God. You may need to just simply come forward, get on your knees, and pray. You may need to go over to that cross and spend some time talking to Jesus. I don't know what it is, but would you do it? And you might say, well, I don't want to come forward. That's fine. And do it where you are. Get on your knees where you are and call out to God. But you're going to make a decision one way or the other right now as we sing together. Let's stand.